request uh, meeting to order. Police and Fire Retirement Board meeting. Recording in progress. For September 7th. Uh, I'll start off with a roll call. We have Sunita. Yes, present. Dave Wilson. Here. Andrew. Here. Dick. Present. And uh, Trustee Lee. Uh, Quan. <laughs> Here. Okay, well, we are currently um, missing Howard Lee and Eswar, um, although we are expecting them. Um, for orders of the day, we have a September 7th joint governance meeting that was canceled. And then for waving sunshine, we have item 1.5B2, which is uh, approval of a trustee travel and reimbursement memo. And then we are gonna head into closed session with an estimated exit time around 9.30.
here, so we'll reconvene. We have uh, one reportable item out of closed session, which is to waive confidentiality of a memo from Reed Smith. And that's with, um, just for the record, item 1A of the closed session, and there's no reportable action on item uh, 1B. Thank you. Uh, Willie Harvey, there was something that we had to pull from the consent calendar. Rain? Yes. Oh, yes. City District. Yeah, 15B2, I believe. Okay. And then I will entertain a motion to approve the so consent moved. calendar. So moved by Santa. Second. Second Gardner. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Abstentions? Okay. And then you would have to separately vote on the item that was pulled from the consent calendar. Yes. I thought we already did that. <coughs> no, you We waved sunshine it. on oh. it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. So that is approval of trust travel for Sunita. I'm going to entertain a motion. So moved. Motion Santos. Second. Second Gardner. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Opposed? Abstentions? investments probably take it away all right thank you mr chairman um i had the pleasure of attending uh, a conference this morning all sv in silicon in mountain view and uh, had the privilege of sharing a panel with the cios of sacramento county and the bmo family office it was an interesting discussion around macro issues uh, the markets and so on so thanks for keeping that closed session going i'm here time. <laughs> And just as I always do report on fiscal year-to-date performance, um, this is of course just been a couple of months this year, but uh, the, the pension plan is down nine basis points and the healthcare trust is flat. Uh, that's this current fiscal year. Uh, this morning we have our uh, 6.30 performance review presentation by Newberger Berman and, and Nikita, and then we will have one item on a legal contract after that. Uh, with that, I'm happy to take any questions. All right, seeing that there are no questions, uh, we can go to 2B, and I'd like to invite uh, Casey Boyer to present. Great, thank you. And let me just take one minute and share my screen. Okay, can everyone see? I think it should be up. Um, yeah, so thank, thank you for having me. We appreciate the opportunity to present um, quarterly um, and, and keep the board apprised of investments we're making and, and, and the investment pace and how uh, the portfolio has been doing. So I'll start out um, on the first page, which I'm sure you all recognize, um, just going through some high-level statistics on the Newberger Strategic Partnership. You can also see here on the left column 
the um, legacy portfolio and how those two combine. Um, really from Q4 to Q1, and this report is actually as of um, Q1, um, there was not a lot of change. So the, the portfolio went um, basically par from quarter to quarter. Um, and that is really um, just taking a moment to step back and look at the market, the private, private market. Um, that really was how the markets were in general for private equity. Um, realizations and exits in 2023 have slowed as, um, as people are being a little bit more cautious with elevated inflation and high interest rates. Um, and, and some of the public market volatility, we've we've seen um, deal activity pull back, um, not completely. There are still private equity transactions um, moving forward, but it has been a big setback from really record-breaking years of 2021 and and even um, the first half of 2022. Um, so we did not see a lot of distributions within the portfolio in Q1. Um, that doesn't mean anything bad. It's just kind of the nature of um, the how the market moves um, within private equity. So um, as of Q1, a net multiple of 1.8 times and a net IRR of 23.8. As a reminder, we are continually investing. So these numbers include investments um, that have just been made that are still being held at cost. Um, so continue to see um, strong portfolio performance um, within this partnership. And as a reminder, we, we have been investing since May 2017. So we've just kind of moved over the six year mark of, of investing. Um, moving to, okay. I'll just, I'll just look through the, to the last page, which- um, Stacy. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to scream. Uh, I apologize. Um, we have a question by trustees. Is that okay? Of course. Okay. Thank you. So, you said that the uh, the results on slide two were flat. Oh, not flat. They didn't change from the prior quarter. Yeah, but very very slight change. Is, is there a way for the future we can get compared to the prior quarter? Just because every time I get this, I always have to look to see, you know, what happened in the last quarter to compare mm -hmm. to this quarter. Is there a way? I know you do that a little bit at, at the end, but is there a way to get on slide two uh, a prior quarter on net IR and uh, multiple? Yes, of course. All we right. can definitely, definitely add that. I'm just going to jot that down so I don't forget. Great. Thank you. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and to be super specific, um, why don't we go to the last page and just highlight. So if you look very specifically, the net TVPI is 1.75 for, um, for Q1. At Q4, it was 1.77. So um, Q1 was, I guess, down very slightly, but um, pretty much on par. And so when you look um, at, at page nine, we are looking at the performance of the investment type. So we're investing into primary funds, 
um, a little bit of secondaries. We have only about 5% of the portfolio within secondaries and then about 25% of the portfolio in co-investments or direct company investments. And you can see here how each of the um, investment types are generating performance and how that contributes to the overall performance. Co-investments um, have been doing very well and, and really exactly what we would expect them to do within the portfolio. They're very specific exposures um, and tend to generate returns a little bit quicker than primaries where primaries are investing capital over time. So it just takes a little bit more time to see some of that return um, come through. When you look at your portfolio um, on a benchmarking analysis and comparing it to peers, um, we benchmark against the vintage of the fund. So this is a 2017 vintage. Um, and as a reminder, we are continually investing. So even though we started investing in 2017 and we're comparing to 2017 funds, we are still actively investing. However, um, the quartiling still looks pretty positive with a first quartile based on IRR and a second quartile for net TVPI for Q1. Um, those are just kind of the high level um, points that I wanted to make, but I'm happy to answer any further questions or go into any kind of more market questions if, if there's any from your side. It doesn't look like we have any questions, so I guess we can move on. Yes, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'd like to invite Laura Weirich from Makita to address 2C. I'll go ahead and just start off uh, <clears throat> talking about the uh, private markets program. So um, as you know, you have four programs, private debt, real assets, real estate, and venture capital. The private um, debt and uh, real estate programs are quite mature. They have both have um, current allocations that are above their target allocations, whereas the real assets program and especially venture capital are still in the investing stage. Um, I will note that all of your private markets programs are currently exceeding our measures for public market equivalence benchmarks. So the way we, we calculate a public markets equivalent benchmark is to take the cash flows. As you know, these individual funds call capital and distribute it based on their own schedule. And so we, um, we calculate the public markets equivalent, which is the far right column, assuming that the same amount of cash had been contributed into that public markets benchmark and then withdrawn at the same time that the managers are doing so. So you can see on the far right that the internal rate of return of each program that you all have um, exceeds the public market equivalent internal rate of return on the far right for a total um, IRR of over 10% for your private markets programs. Um, on the next slide, you can see the private debt program, which has an IRR of 6.4%. 
currently is about 4.5% of your overall retirement plan, slightly above the 4% target, and there were no new commitments to this program during the quarter that we're looking at today. If we skip ahead to slide five and take a look at the individual um, funds in your program, again, I will slide over to the far right to take a look at the internal rate of return for each fund relative to the peer median. On the left, you can see the name of the fund and also its vintage year. Um, so vintage year diversification is very important in this area. Um, we never know exactly what vintage years are going to perform the best. So therefore, it makes sense to have a pacing plan as you do for each asset class and commit over time. On the next slide, you can see the most recent commitments in 2021 and 2022. Sorry, back one slide to six. Um, and these are all not meaningful yet in terms of performance because they are still in the um, initial investing period. The next program that we'll take a look at two slides ahead on page eight is the Real Assets Program. I mentioned that this one was a bit more immature than uh, private debt and um, real asset, or I'm sorry, private real estate. Currently has a 2.2% allocation of the total retirement plan versus a 4% target. And this program has a 14% IRR, so has really benefited from the run-up in commodity prices in particular over the last several years. Skipping two slides ahead, we can look at vintage year performance, and this really illustrates what I was just saying um, on page 10 of the report. Um, in terms of the importance of vintage year diversification, you can see on the far right, so we look at each vintage year here, you know, pretty wildly different returns by vintage year both for um, the peer group and the individual program. And so this is why it's so important to commit regularly to make sure that you take advantage of those years like 2019 and 2021, where you have a you know, 25% or better return um, and, uh, and continue to not miss any of those, those vintage years. Questions? It seems to be remarkably lower for us than the peer IRR. Is there some manager that didn't do well? If you look at the next slide on 11, um, the there's just two investments that were 2020 vintage year. So their um, Global Infrastructure Partners 4 has a 3.8% IRR. And then there's an energy co-investment that is still pretty young in its life. And so I would expect that these funds will change their, their IRRs over time. So there's a lot of you know, manager-specific um, influence on each year's return in this area. The next program that we'll take a look at on page 14 is real estate. Um, it's a mature program with 4.4% of the overall asset allocation relative to a 4% target and an IRR of 12.7%. You can see starting on page 17, the individual funds in the program. Um, this has been a very successful program. In particular, you can see quite strong returns from the DRA funds, which your staff continues to commit to. Um, in particular, DRA uh, 9 in 2017, with quite a strong return, DRA 10 at a 22.3% IRR. Um, a PISO there is a, um, a non-US fund that has been negatively influenced by currency movements and a strong dollar. Um, so that's why you see a negative number there. But again, still a young fund, and uh, especially current mo currency movements will change quite a bit over the life of that fund. And then the last program I'll discuss on page 20 in your private markets program 
is venture capital. So the plan so far has committed $115.7 million to 14 venture capital funds, and that's about a 1% allocation right now based on called capital relative to a 4% target. There were two new funds on the next slide that were committed to during uh, the quarter that we're looking at, the first quarter of 2023, Crosslink and Sierra. Um, and given the you know, individual fund risk in this area, the commitment sizes are smaller than some of the other private markets programs. Um, and you can see a full listing of the funds in this program on page 23. Not much meaningful per performance yet in the program. These funds are still in the J curve where they're calling fees they haven't realized investments yet. So um, I would not put too much stock in the uh, IRR numbers here yet, but the program continues to develop. And we have a lot of other information in this report on the market environment for private markets, but with that, and in, in the interest of time, I'll wrap up the private markets report. Talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing in the markets at a high level, you know, any liquidations from other institutional investors, opportunities. <coughs> Um, among Makita clients, we generally see people stay in the course in terms of their pacing plans and their commitments over time. We are seeing more challenges in real estate. I know this has come up at past meetings around, you know, uh, many of us not being back in offices regularly. You do see write downs. Um, real estate is varied in terms of multifamily and industrial and other areas that can somewhat offset some of the weakness in areas like office and retail but we do continue to see write downs in real estate, as you probably see in the headlines. Venture capital is an area where, um, you know, you had incredibly strong returns for a period of time. A few years ago, we saw a lot of foundations and endowments that committed, you know, a huge part of their, of their assets to venture capital have really outsized returns. But that area, as you all know, in this area, um, uh, geographically has come back to earth a bit and you see um, more layoffs in those areas and, um, and whatnot. But, you know, I did want to point out the important, importance of the vintage year diversification because generally our clients who are most successful in their private <coughs> markets programs have a pacing plan that they put in place and they commit regularly over time. And there will be um, vintage years that are not as strong, but in general, um, private markets typically can deliver a premium over the long term over the public markets. I would just add on, on VC, uh, a lot of funds have actually postponed their fundraise uh, <coughs> to next year, to next calendar year. And it's partly because of the denominator effect for a lot of plans and also because of what's happened in the market. The fact that we have a lot of dry powder, I think, is, is a plus for us uh, in this and next vintage year. I saw Invesco as your first VC investment. Oh, it's a fund of funds. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, Laura, just a quick question. Um, any change in outlook on direct lending? Just because you hear so much money flowing into that area and just you know squeezing expected returns now, I was trying to get a sense of your thoughts. Sure. Well, um, going forward. Yep, direct lending is not the highest conviction area that Makita has or that I think your internal investment team has in terms of private debt. Um, uh, there are other attractive areas of the private debt market, but um, direct lending, one of the, the chief investment officers I work with was joking a few years ago that she was getting, um, you know, uh, direct lending funds in Saskatchewan, Canada, you know, they were, they were, they were really pro proliferating yeah. quite a bit um, and really, I think, reached down sometimes into the retail market and whatnot. But most institutional investors we, we work with are not um, currently looking at direct lending funds in this market. 
Laura, I had a question on, on secondary interests. Are you seeing any increased activity among LPs, institutional investors, of trying to get liquidity for the portfolios that they have on the secondary market and secondary interests? We do see a bit more talk about it now, but less from a perspective of um, you know, needing to unload funds and more from a perspective of wanting to clean up sort of their current portfolios and, and take some money back maybe for future opportunities, just looking at what might be out there. So, you know, a lot of institutional investors now have been investing in private markets for decades. And when you get to that point, sometimes you end up with some little sub pieces that maybe you don't have as much conviction in anymore. Um, so we are seeing some of our clients seek to go out on the secondary market. Um, of course, there's some challenges because usually what you'd like to get rid of is the less attractive funds in the portfolio and sometimes need to be packaged with more attractive funds to go out and get bids. So it varies based on asset class, how attractive the bid um, market is right now. Um, and there's some challenges for institutions where, you know, if you were to go out to the secondary market, get bids, how does the board evaluate those from a fiduciary perspective? So those are things our, our clients grapple with, but we have seen more folks interested in sort of cleanup of their portfolios in terms of pursuing maybe a secondary sale. All right, thank you. All right, with that, we can go to 2D, thank you. All right, great, so um, good news on the fiscal year performance. Um, the, the pension plan outperformed the actuarial rate of return expectation and also um, broadly benchmarks and peers. I'll take a look at page five on this report just to sort of uh, walk back a little bit to June 30th and look at performance. So if you take a look at 2022 on the left, you see that there was only one major index that was positive, the Bloomberg Commodity Index. Everything else was negative. Um, the year to date through um, June 30th, so on the, on the right here is the first six months of 2023, is almost a mirror image where the Bloomberg Commodity Index was the only negative major asset class and you saw riskier asset classes like global equities um, be the most positive. Um, since June 30th, things have been a bit more challenged in the market, as your CIO mentioned, um, with, uh, with the fiscal year-to-date estimates being about flat. So this quarter through yesterday, you see the MSCI All Country World Index, so global equities are down about 0.1% um, since June 30th. There are a couple of asset classes since June 30th that you have in your portfolio, like high-yield bonds were added within the last few years. High-yield bonds were one of the few positive asset classes since June 30th, up 1.2%. Um, also, hedge funds have been positive since June 30th, so you do have some diversifying asset classes that um, have been doing well in the recent market environment. But if you take a look at this year-to-date period through June 30th and, and what I'll show you for the full fiscal year, you see quite positive returns. We did see um, some negative returns recently for, for bonds um, with the rate environment, but equities were generally positive through the end of June. I'll skip ahead uh, to your yeah, specific question. portfolio. Okay. More of a request. I mean, we all think of in terms of year-to-date, but we instead we talk fiscal today. Is there a way to pictorialize that on a regular basis? We could call that calendar year to date, or we could just change the yeah. time period. Um, we do have other slides in here, um, in particular page 26, that is just a different look 
at the indexes and how things have done. So on 26, you can see the one-year number in the second column here. It's a bit of an eye chart, but if you have it up on your, on your uh, screen, you can see that the one-year returns here. That's the same as your fiscal year. So the Acqui IMI up 16.1%. Emerging markets uh, were weaker at 1.7%. And then if we look under fixed income, uh, about halfway down, you can see that the Barclays Global Aggregate was uh, down for the year, 1.3%. So this is just another graphical representation of the indexes over various time periods. Yeah, I mean, similar point what Howard made in the new book, if we could elevate some of those to the front, that would be very helpful. Sure. Uh, actually, the next uh, page here, two pages ahead, uh, is 28 and where I was going to start my comments on asset allocation. So you can see the current allocations relative to policy. Um, the total market value of your fund was up from the first quarter. There were 71 million in net outflows, but investment gains of 144 million during uh, the period from March 31st to June 30th. On page 29, the next slide, you can take a look at the high-level performance for your total fund. So you can see here that the quarter was up 3%, outperforming the policy benchmark and ranking in the top quartile. Um, you can see the year-to-date return, so this is the first six months of the year, up 6.9%. The one-year return up 7.7, uh, outperforming in both the policy and the investable benchmark portfolio. Um, and then we can also focus on longer-term time periods, the three-year and the five-year. So if you take a look at the three-year return, this is an average annualized return of almost 9%, um, outperforming every benchmark that we look at and ranking above the median. And then also same with the five-year return, an average annual return of, of just above your actuarial assumed rate of return and outperforming all of the benchmarks that we look at as well as the peer group. So you can see that the fund ranked in the top quartile of the peer group for all of, or I'm sorry, the top half of the peer group for all of the trailing time periods with the exception of the 10-year. So when we were sitting here um, uh, recently, we did see the, the longer-term returns, like the five-year peer group ranks often below the 90th percentile, but now comfortably above median. Um, if you take a look at individual asset classes in the next few slides, as you'd expect, without performing benchmarks, the individual asset classes are outperforming their underlying benchmarks as well. I won't go through each one in detail, but we'll make um, a couple of comments. Um, in particular, um, public equity has done quite well. Um, if you take a look on page 33, we get into individual managers in public equity. For the fiscal year period, public equity was up 17.3%, um, an incredibly strong return on an absolute basis, but also on a relative basis that outperformed the public equity benchmark of 15.6%. So public equity, it's a bit harder sometimes to outperform net of fees over a period of time, um, but your team has managed to do that. And I know there's going to be in your investment committee meeting a bit later, a more of a deep dive into public markets. And Laura, um, so the private markets all reported the quarter lag, right? So That's right. One year is April 1st to March 30th, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, on page 34, one so thing I'll just This question. Oh, this uh, this April, I'm sorry, I know you, you look at this a lot. We look at it only once a three, <laughs> couple of months, I guess. 
the inceptions, inception number, 8.3%, that's pretty accurate. It, I mean, we there have been several custodian switches during that time, so we don't have every um, historical number. But according to the records um, back to 1971, the 8.3% wow. is accurate. We wonder why we're still so underfunded. I mean, that's just doesn't add up. But it's a conversation for another day. Yeah, I think there's many, many factors that go into the funding status, right? So. On page 34, I'll just point out under U.S. equity that Burgundy, U.S. small cap, is a new manager hired to replace uh, Cove Street. Um, Cove Street struggled quite a bit in recent years, but you all went out on a high note selling high when they had recently come back a bit, um, and Burgundy was funded in June. In terms of other um, new managers on page 37, you can see Unify India was funded in April 2023. Um, ranks in the first quartile of the emerging markets peer group since you funded them. And I'll point out, you know, emerging markets as a whole for this quarter that we're looking at were um, up 1.6%. You can see that Unify was up 13.1% and Kotec India was up 12%. So I know that we've had some conversations around how your emerging markets is positioned, around how China has struggled and, and is a large part of the emerging markets arena, but your investment team has chosen to implement part of the Emerging Markets Program through dedicated Indian managers, and thus far, um, that's paid off in performance. I will skip ahead to, um, to page 42. I believe your investment team wanted to explain something. Thanks, Laura. A quick comment on the second line item on page 42, Real Assets Co-Invest 1. So usually on private markets investments, we point you to the private markets performance reports. Those are reported on a money-weighted return basis, so IRRs, versus this report, which is time-weighted. So each month has the same weight in terms of returns. But for private markets, the managers actually control the timing of cash flows and capital calls and distributions. So that's usually more appropriate. There is one thing that's noteworthy here, the negative 96.2% return for this particular investment. So this, the details of this investment were shared with the members of the investment committee. Uh, this is a 2020 investment in a venture-backed company. At the time had a very high growth profile, interesting risk return profile with elevated risk since it was an unprofitable company that was um, doing something that was disruptive and, and interesting. However, the, the company failed to meet its growth targets, had to raise capital at a difficult time. Uh, it was unprofitable. Venture funds were pulling back in terms of making new investments. So this investment has been written down. Um, so it was originally $1.8 million down to $68,000 um, as of April. So you'll see this in next quarter's private markets report. Um, but just wanted to share that this is one of only two direct co-investments we made. So the second line item, Crestline Co-Investment 2, is the other one. So this was a $3.2 million co-investment, which has done well. So that's increased to $5.6 million since 2021. Um, and if there's any questions, happy to answer them or I'll let Laura keep going. Wait, so is this public or private? I completely missed This is a private real asset. So it was an investment in a direct company. Right. So, but, okay. So we, we switch back to privates. So, so we show all the private investments as part of the total fund in this report. Oh. Um, just in more detail, we have them in the private markets report as well. And this is as of June 30th, so the valuation adjustment happened in April. So that's why it didn't show up in the private markets report that Laura just presented. 
I'll wrap up my comments on page 59. Taking a look, you know, we talk a lot about returns of your plan, but like to look at risk in the plan as well, um, at least as we measure it in terms of volatility. So for the three-year trailing period ending June 30th, you can see on the left here, the annualized return is well above median um, of the peer group. In the second uh, column here, you can see the annualized standard deviation, or measure of volatility. The total fund standard deviation was 9%, and that's below the peer group median of 9.6. Um, for return, we want above median. For standard deviation or volatility, we want below median. Um, so doing well on both of those metrics, and those feed into the third uh, graphic here, which is the sharp ratio, which is a measure of risk-adjusted return. So we want a higher sharp ratio, and you can see that the, the sharp ratio for the plan over the past three years has been above median and uh, pretty close to the top quartile of the peer group on a risk-adjusted basis. So congratulations on meeting the actuarial assumed rate of return, and we will try to do it again next year. Um, yeah, good job. Good job, uh, Corporal. Good job, Laura. Um, question about the uh, ass allocation. Has it been pretty much steady at 70% throughout the year? I mean, I know this is a snapshot in time that we see in the presentation, but I'm just kind of curious. Have you had any shifts, minor shifts? To no, I mean, we have, we can equitize it through overlays. Uh, so based on market movements, we do have occasional deviations from our strategic asset allocation, but we we used Russell and their overlay program to bring it back to target. And so our intent is to keep to target. Some Yes. Thank you. And with that, we'll go to 2E. Okay. The healthcare trust I will be uh, quick on. Uh, you have representation from the same managers, that at least those that are liquid as the pension fund. So I will take a look first at uh, page 26, which shows the asset allocation relative to targets. So this fund uh, stood at over 290 million. It's about six million higher at the end of June than it was at the end of March. There were net cash outflows during the quarter of about a million and a half and investment gains of 7.3 million. Taking a look at the next slide in terms of overall performance, you can see that the healthcare trust's quarter return was 2.6%, beating the policy benchmark. And if you take a look at the full fiscal year, the return was 8.1% ahead of the policy benchmark and the peer group. Um, and the three-year period, slightly behind the policy benchmark, but well ahead of this peer group here and ranking around the top quartile. And as you know, this fund is mainly um, implemented through, uh, through public products, um, index funds, and a sampling of the the strategies in the pension. So um, I don't have anything else to mention on the healthcare trust, but I'm happy to take questions. All right, well, thank you, Laura. And thank you, you know, we have a, as you've seen, good five-year numbers, and uh, large part thanks to the support of the boards uh, for, for helping us achieve that. And of course, past performance is no guarantee of future performance, so let me put it out there. Uh, with that, we can go to 2F, and I'd like to invite Ron. Good morning. Um, 
in your packet, you have a memo regarding Hanson Bridget's contract uh, amendment. Uh, Hanson Bridget has been providing investment-related re investment legal services since 2008. Uh, in 2011 and 2020, 20, we conducted another RFP and they were rehired. Uh, the current agreement expires in 2025. However, we're kind of coming close to the um, maximum budgeted amount of 600000 um, Hanson Bridges assists the investment staff in with legal reviews of contracts as well as other legal items that come up, investment-related legal items that come up. We are recommending adding another 300000 150 per year for the next two years to the budgeted item. With that, I'll take any questions you may have. Um, this RFP that went out mm -hmm. was 2008. Well, the first one was 2008, and then we conducted another one in 2011, and then an, a third one in 2020. Uh, and what is our policy on this? Sorry. I, I, um, I believe we tend to conduct an RFP every five years or so on legal services. I mean, is that policy or is that practice? It's practice. I don't know, uh, Harvey or Maytag, or is this, I mean, I'm obviously wearing the lens of other things, but this is, should we be? So is the question related to the amount subject to the vote, or are you asking about the RFP policy before approving that amount? I'm a little confused by the question. Yeah, sorry. Let me, uh, let me get my thoughts together. I'm, I'm wondering if, um, before we increase the, contract, are we obligated under any policy of ours to have a new RFP? I, I can address that issue. <coughs> Excuse me. No, we are not obligated. Uh, I think what um, staff indicated is that we have a practice, whether it's a legal or whether it's any other consultant, we uh, issue RFPs about every five years or so. It's just a practice that we follow. And in this particular case, the last RFP was 2020. Yeah, was three years ago. We are getting close to reaching the, uh, the total limit, and so we are extending, asking an increase in that figure, um, understanding that we still have time left on that contract. And so there is no requirement. We could go back to an RFP if we wanted to, but there's no requirement for us to do that. So the requirement would be in 25, not in 25. Again, that's based on practice. We can go back in 2025 and uh, and uh, do an RFP for legal services. Just as a matter of uh, discussion, um, uh, we are going to be issuing an RFP for actuarial services this year. Uh, our last actuarial, which is one of the consultants, was five years. We extended it a couple of years, but on actuarial services for public plans, there are not that many players in California, so it's very limited. That that one allows us to have uh, a longer tenure for RFP. The same for the um, financial auditor for the plan, it's every five to seven years. Uh, so again, the last one we did for uh, legal purposes was 2020. Um, by the way, we do try to, staff correct me if I'm mistaken, uh, when we do an RFP, we try to combine different services, so not just general counsel and fiduciary counsel for the board, but tax counsel and also disability counsel. So we do have other uh, legal services for those, and in fact, I believe at a prior meeting, we also extended or increased the amount for the legal services for investment. For on the federal side, we did. 
Exactly. Yes. yes. So, again, bottom line is um, for practical purposes, we try to do an RFP every five years, whether it's legal or other consulting services, uh, but we're not required to do so. Just to I don't know if you're driving towards this, but uh, this is ORS governed by city policy or is it by board policy <laughs> on these I things? was trying to avoid asking that question. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, I, again, that's our practice. I, I, I can't say that we're going by any city practice or anything like that. I just know that it's, it's good uh, business to yeah. uh, check for those services every so often. Yeah. And it seemed to us that the five-year term uh, is a reasonable one. I mean, yeah, if any, if we have an RFP coming for investment consultant, for example, uh, later this year, and that's been what four years now, three to four years. Three years for now. Three years, yeah. So just good practice to go and survey uh, services available in the market. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Chairman, question. Thank you, Ron. Um, are the legal fees associated with each contract expensed against the performance? The, the return of each investment, the way the manager's fees are netted, and are they, is the net shown in our performance reports? No, the, uh, the legal fees are shown at the fee report that's presented to the board separately. That's right. So the net of fee, Harvey, does not include legal expenses pertaining to that particular investment. It is net of management fees. But the, f the report that we will present to this board next month and which we will take to the city council will show both the management fees as well as the operational expenses, which include all legal fees. Okay, and that's the same with any other investment-related expenses. That's right, like investment They're not netted against the return of the that investment. Is correct. That is correct. So if we had a particularly difficult contract to negotiate that incurred substantial yep. fees, it would not be netted against the performance of that particular manager. That is correct. And in fact, that's something that we take into account, especially if it's a smaller investment, yeah. but if it's particularly complex and it's going to require a lot of legal fees and legal hours, that's something that we take into account. Like, is it really, from a materiality perspective, is it worth, even if it's a really good investment, but if it's a $3 million investment, is it worth retaining Hanson Bridget for 30 hours. So that does go into consideration. Thank you. Chairman, may I? I have a quick question. Just help me understand. Uh, the contract is going to go for another two years, but we're already maxing out. Was that just because we utilized it more than we thought, or we didn't budget it correctly in the beginning? We, we utilized it more than we had expected uh, two years ago. Okay. I have been that yeah, and perhaps to share some specific examples, within private markets, the venture capital asset class is one we've spent more time on. Mm -hmm. And in particular, 2022 was higher than expected as we negotiated two strategic partnerships. And those are more one-off, but that did take up more budget than we had expected. Okay. All right, that helps me understand. Thank you. This, this requires action, Mr. Chairman. Just go in there. So this is a discussion and action. So I'll entertain a motion. Motion, motion from Santos. Second by Trustee Lee. Second by Lee. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Opposed? Aye. Abstentions? Okay. Thank you. 
Thank you. No, no further agenda item on investments. Okay, thank you. All right, we'll move on to three. We got old business continued and deferred items. 3A is discussion and action of appointment of labor negotiator for the CEO position. So if I may, uh, our previous designated uh, labor negotiator for the CEO was uh, Chair Latza, but Chair Latza will not be present for the next two board meetings um, and is out until November as, as we understand it. And so because of that and to keep the process moving, we will need to uh, re-vote on designating a new labor negotiator in his stead. Um, and with that, I turn it back to you. Okay. So I don't know, do we have a motion? I'd like to. Well, hold on. <laughs> Let's talk about what the motion is. <laughs> no, um, yeah, as uh, vice chair, uh, I think I'll nominate uh, Franco as the negotiator for the CEO. Okay, we have a motion. We have a second. I'll second. Second, Wilson. And those in favor? Aye. 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 Opposed? Abstentions? Okay. Uh, let's see, I think. The next one was you. Yeah, that's back, back to me. Um, so item 3B is a, a report out of closed session from the June 1st, 2023 board meeting. Um, I'm reporting out two settlements relating to the overpayments made to two individuals who retired with service-connected disability without meeting the minimum eligibility requirements for a service retirement. And these two individuals had a separate account divorce relation orders known as SADROs. In both cases, ORS had um, paid the individual their 50% average, final average salary and then paid their alternative payee, also known as their former spouse, their share on top of the member's 50%, thereby exceeding what would be paid to the member alone, um, which violates San Jose Municipal Code 3.361020. Uh, if the board remembers, there was a lot of discussion around the, the SADROs and how to calculate those benefits uh, for members who were uh, who retired before, had received that sort of retirement of service-connected disability and had a SADRO. Um, when looking into those matters, we determined that we overpaid two members, and that's how it became to our attention uh, earlier this year. Um, because of that overpayment, the board had a duty to correct this and recoup payments to the extent possible, and the board has done so by way of settlement of all claims with these two, two particular members, which are as follows. One, uh, Randall Campbell, um, in light he had, during our settlement uh, discussions, he had revealed that he had extensive medical bills, severe disability, and no other earning capacity, and ex faced extreme financial hardship. Um, this individual did come before the board at our May meeting to address those issues before the board, and the board took that into consideration when structuring the settlement agreement we reached with him. So in light of those factors, the board entered and approved a settlement agreement with Mr. Campbell with the following settlement terms. Effective July 1st, 2023, the plan prospectively adjusted Mr. Campbell's current monthly retirement benefit amount, including COLAs, from $7,097.87 to $5,070.52 to account for the deduction of $2,027.35 paid to his alternative pay um, as a result of as required under San Jose Municipal Code 3.36.3360. So this was to uh, prospectively correct and deduct the alternative payee's amount from 
the member's portion of his service-connected disability retirement benefit. Mr. Campbell agreed to not dispute this prospective application of the municipal code or the adjusted monthly benefit amounts. And all, both parties agree that future COLAs will be applied to the new, new amounts and remain unaffected. And the plan will not seek to recover any past overpayments made to Mr. Campbell in light of his financial hardship. Now, with regards to the second settlement that involved a member named Joe Fleming, Mr. Fleming's circumstances were different from Mr. Campbell's. Um, he is currently remarried, currently is unemployed, but his wife is gainfully employed. His uh, total base living expenses is about $4,000.58 per month. We took that into account when structuring our settlement agreements uh, because we, didn't, we took that as uh, the measure of where it would get into the territory of financial hardship. In light of this information, the board entered in and approved settlement agreement with Mr. Fleming with the following uh, settlement terms. Effective July 1st, 2023, <coughs> the plan prospectively adjusted Mr. Fleming's current monthly retirement benefit amount, including COLAs, from $6,518.67 to $5,223.93 to account for the deduction of $2,027.35 paid <coughs> to this alternative payee as required under the San Jose Municipal Code. Again, we are prospectively reducing the amount of their alternative pays payment from the members' 50% amount that they were owed. As with Mr. Campbell, all future COLAs will apply to these new amounts and will be unaffected. And Mr. Fleming agreed to repay the plan $20,000 in overpayments in a 36 month, month 36 monthly installments to be deducted from his monthly retirement benefit uh, that further reduce the amount from $5,223.93 to $4,668.36 subject to all future COLAs during the 36-month repayment period. Mr. Fleming also agreed not to dispute the pro prospective application or the um, repayment of the $20,000 um, to the plan. With that, I turn that back to you. Okay, thank you. I will move on to new business. That's you. Mr. Chair, may I take the moment yes, to say that, you know, a lot of times that uh, <clears throat> life for uh, the police officers and firefighters are tough enough, and then other issues come up. I want to personally thank Maytag and Harvey for helping these individuals out. It's a difficult time, but thank you. Okay. Roberto, new business? Yes. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, if you bear with me, just a couple of comments. Uh, last time we had your board meeting, um, the city um, was going through uh, some issues with some bargaining units uh, and a potential for a strike. Uh, that strike was averted and the city reached agreements with the bargaining units. Uh, so I just wanted you to be aware of that. We, the city averted the strike and um, we didn't have any issues with that. I didn't have to put into place any any contingency plans. Uh, we also want to let you know that the health open enrollment uh, is in progress. Uh, the planning for it, the open enrollment takes place from November 1st to November 30th for next calendar year health selections. Uh, on November 8th, we're going to have the retiree health fair at the Lanning Center 
from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. here in San Jose. Uh, November 9th, uh, staff open enrollment presentation at the Association of Retired San Jose Police Officers and Firefighters. The uh, executive assistant recruitment is underway and interviews will be conducted in the coming weeks. Uh, the benefits analyst recruitment, disability recruitment is underway and interviews will also be conducted later this month. Uh, we are also we also completed the recruitment for the benefit health analyst Tram Hoon, and she will study her role in early October. And lastly, uh, our office will be closed uh, in observance of Indigenous Peoples Day uh, on Monday, October 9th. That concludes. Oh no, I have one more. Apologies. We do have a new accountant that is going to start on uh, with our accounting group this coming Monday, September 11th, Trent uh, Vo. And the RFP for insurance brokers was issued last week and will remain open through September 29th. That concludes my uh, update, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Okay, we'll go to 4B, oral update from City Council liaison. Great, thank you, Chair. Uh, just a couple of things uh, following up on the <coughs> announcement that we have reached successful negotiations with our bargaining units and that comes to council next week for approval. The bargaining units have approved it and of course uh, council authorized that a few weeks ago. So I, I was really happy to see that we reached that conclusion and avoided a strike. It really shows our employee groups that we value them, they're important to us, and we want to compensate them appropriately. Having said that, it does put us in a bind fiscally this year because we, when the budget was prepared at the end of June, it did not include pay increases. It made some assumptions, but the assumptions were not high enough, so we're going to have to find about $3 million in cuts to our budget. That comes to council next week, and it includes um, several things, but one thing shouldn't affect programs too much this cycle. Next year round it may in a bigger way um, because the, the gap that we have to fill next year is potentially much larger, but it really depends on the economic conditions. So there's a lot to know and figure out between now and, and then. I do want to mention that I will be submitting a memo to modify staff recommendation uh, because I think it's really important that council offices bear some of the burden in reducing the expenses. So my memo along with other members in my Brown Act will include a reduction of our district office staff budget and uh, the mayor's budget as well. So that way it's not just our programs that may be affected, it's city council district offices that will be reducing their budgets and, and none of that will affect the programs and services we're able to offer to our constituents but I think it's really important that we as council members and the mayor have skin in the game in the reduction and balancing the budgets and it's not all the burden is on our residents or all the burden is on our employees too. I just wanted to share that. The last thing is really more a question for me. I'm, I'm on the Rules Committee and I saw that September 19th you have an item coming before us 
uh, in relation to the compensation? Is that the range package that's coming to us? Correct. That's the salary range um, recommendation for the CEO, CIO, uh, and the investment officers positions. I, I at my meeting yesterday at the city agenda review. Um, I requested, if possible, and I think it was discussed at rules committee, the item could be moved up in the presentation so that trustees that will be in attendance don't have to sit there for potentially a few hours before the item. I don't know if it was approved by the rules committee or not, if the question was even asked. It, it, wasn't it was asked? asked at rules, but we can do that next Wednesday. Thank you for letting me know. Yes. Because we can make that happen, and, and I appreciate that that's an issue. You don't want to sit there yeah, and, no, I, I and wait. The trustees, whoever's <laughs> presenting, I don't know, is it Franco who's presenting? Uh, there, there's going to be a combination of both right. boards and members. And in the past, the reason I asked that this morning, uh, yesterday at the meeting, in the past, we, we have all the issues that trustees have been there present for presentation. And as you know, items at the city council can take sometimes hours. So some of them have been there, in fact, had to have leave and not presented because they couldn't wait. So we just request, uh, it will be really appreciated if the rules committee can consider that. Yeah, I don't think that's a problem. I will uh, make sure I include that in any motion that's made on to rules next week. But it's a, it, the fact that it wasn't adopted yesterday isn't a problem. Cause okay, we'll, so it, they, okay, I, that was what Yeah, because we'll modify the, the, uh, the agenda next week too. Okay. So we uh, have time. Very okay. well. Good to know. Thank you. Sure. Uh, with that, that's I conclude my presentation. Thank you. Through the chair, through the chair, I want to say thanks, uh, Pam, for the work you guys did for the labor. And maybe next time you could take care of Nick Boza. <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving on to 4C, discussion and action on merit increments and executive days for fiscal year ending June 30th, 2023 the CEO and CIO position. You're going to negotiate before this comes out, correct? Is that I don't know. It's on our agenda. So I'm not sure. I would recommend that we defer this action um, now that we've okay. designated you as a labor negotiator in, in light of Drew's um, absence. Okay. It's a little premature right now. Yeah. Well, um, so I, 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 just so that it's understood, I have spoken to uh, Vice Chair Vado before with understanding that he may be selected. Um, I have, I, I can't speak for the CIO, but I have my, my review yesterday with both chairs. And the reason I requested that conversation to take place in anticipation of this meeting was so the board could take action today. Uh, because if we wait for the next meeting, then uh, it go past the process at the city, and instead of October, we're looking at February of 2024 for any payroll processing by the city. So I was hoping we didn't, we couldn't have to wait four or five months for that. Um, I I share with Trustee Battle my comments uh, and discussions on that yesterday, so he's well aware of it. I just want to put it on the table. Obviously, your board gets to decide how you want to proceed. I just wanted to make that point. But even if you don't do the CEO discussion, again, I don't know, have you met with you, the two chairs? Because if you have met with the IC chairs, they could proceed with your discussion. 
Uh, no, I have not met oh. the Mahesi. Okay, well, then I don't know. Well, we could, I, I think the uh, police and fire meeting is what, early October? Um, if we were allowed to let Federated vote first, I believe they would go first in the situation where we've just recently designated uh, Franco to be the labor negotiator at this moment, who's authorized to act. Yeah, that just would not be time for the city to do the payroll process. And I don't know, I, can't, I know Cheryl cannot speak for the director of finance, but in the past, when that transpired, then it has taken place in the February paycheck. And you know, I just rather not have to wait until February of 2024. But if that's the case, uh, you know, I guess we will have to do that. Um, I don't know. In the past, I've been led to believe that there is not an option if the first payment in October is skipped. There is no other way to work this until February. Is that again? I don't want to put you in the spot, Cheryl, but is that your understanding as well? No, 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 yeah, no. I, I Correct, yes. I, I, I don't mean to say that it's not retroactive. It is, but it is still paid in February. Okay, all right. instruct the each their labor negotiators to meet with each other and with you and the CIO and we're not there yet um, to be able to do that just by the passage of the clock so I'm I don't know how we can resolve that the, the, because there's no action this board can take today this board can't act uni unilaterally on it, so I, I, you know, okay. I'm at a loss with, with how we can address your timing issue. You're absolutely right, but this board does not have authority to proceed at this, moment. Uh, at this point. I mean, as an alternative for the chair and the rest of the board to consider is that if, if the uh, labor negotiators are successful in reaching consensus with the federated labor negotiators, we could schedule a special meeting in advance of the deadline just to address this very issue. Um, so it's not without payroll, but I, I appreciate you raising the issue for payroll so we can consider that once we've had a chance to confer with our counterparts. Yeah, I'd be open to a special meeting. Yeah, uh, it's, it's just that it has to be, I mean, ultimately any compensation decision by both boards have to take place during an agendized open session. Mm -hmm. And we can't have that today. We're just not there yet. Okay. So we'll go on to item 4D. I'm sorry, let go me ahead. just correct one thing. I, I just recall that we can't do a special meeting for compensation purposes. That's under the Brown Act. So um, I so I stand corrected on that issue. I, I take back what I just said. Okay, 4D, discussion and action authorizing the CEO to negotiate 
and execute the First Amendment to the agreements ending on June 30th, 2025 for legal services between the Board of Administration, the Police and Fire Department Retirement Plan, and Reed Smith to add 600,000 to increase the maximum contract from 1 million to 1.6 million. Okay, so this item, as you mentioned, is to add $600,000 as a first amendment to the original contract from Reed Smith. Um, when the original contract was drafted in 2020 as a result of an RFP for legal services, Reed Smith incurred an average of less than $200,000 a month in expenses, which included their general counsel invoices as well as their hourly and fiduciary invoices. As you can see in the memo, for the past two, fiscal year, past two years, the total expenses per fiscal year have been close to $400,000 which increased the annual average for the past three years of the contract to $300,000. The increase is mainly due to um, unanticipated um, services such as the felony forfeiture and municipal code provision services for domestic relations orders. Um, so we are asking for $600,000 to cover the remaining two years left in the original contract. And after the um, the original contracts contract expires in um, two years, then we will most likely be back to either issue an RFP or to extend the term and add more funds to the contract. Well, Mr. Do Chair, we, I'll, are make there a, any questions? I'll make a motion that we do that. Harvey has to stay. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> okay, we got um, I'm sorry, did you have something else to say? No, I just asked if there were any questions. Yeah, I have one one question just out of curiosity. I, I saw in that page two on fiscal year 21-22, I mean, aside from the big felony forfeiture expense, there was very little else in terms of well, legal it, expenses. It, it was a lot of miscellaneous yeah. um, items. Okay. And then yeah. The, yeah, in, in 2022, year, one of the miscellaneous items is there was the Medicare uh, mandate enforcement actions that we had taken with um, the city to wor work through that and making sure all of our members were had the opportunity to enroll again. Okay, all right, thanks. Okay, any other questions? <coughs> I have a motion from Dick, do I have a second? Second. Well, Sunita's got Sunita, uh, our second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Opposed? Okay. Uh, 4E, discussion and presentation by Corsex consulting on the police and fire board performance self-assessment good morning um, yeah there's no presentation today so sorry to disappoint you I know you've got a busy schedule um, there was a brief <coughs> memo outlining the uh, requirement to do a board self-assessment it's a fairly straightforward process done once every two years uh, we did one last year for the other fund federated that uh, simply requires you responding to an online uh, survey request that comes from me. I'll send that tomorrow. Each one of you will get an individual uh, uh, survey template that you can fill out. Should take less than 30 minutes. It goes through things like, you know, you're, you get along well with your colleagues. You're focused on the right things. It's strategic. It's policy as opposed to operations, that kind of thing. So there's about 20 questions. Tick the box. You agree, disagree. I think we should do have more meetings, fewer meetings. The length of the meetings are fine, they should be shorter, and there's rooms for you to put uh, your perspectives, things you think work well, things that could be improved, etc. Uh, so it's fairly straightforward, should take 30 minutes. Um, the timeline there suggests that maybe you could have a week to do it. If we slip a few days, that's fine, you'll get a nudge from me. 
Uh, when you get the email from me, just please uh, respond just to make sure we've got you. It's easy to get lost in uh, the volume that you get. And then um, if you feel it's uh, necessary to have a call, with Federated, most of the trustees decided they did want to have a call either to expand on something they weren't comfortable writing down. Um, and again, everything's confidential. I'm, I'm the only one who sees it. I won't name anybody by name. We'll just give broad um, feedback like the length of the meetings are fine, etc. And I'll play that back in a report uh, next month if that works for the committee. Any questions or comments? Can you talk to us generally about how other clients of yours operate versus us? How they operate versus you? It's uh, interesting. My biggest sample is Canadian <coughs> funds, and the big the big thing that's different is these are all open forums. So that's the big difference. Um, uh, I don't have enough samples to say um, uh, specifically what what an experience with this particular <coughs> board to say that. Uh, but I'm happy to think about it. And I can talk to Tom, my former colleague, um, provide some high level comments. I'll put I'll put some thought to that for next meeting. Yeah, I think from my perspective, it'd be helpful to know. Uh, you know, from a consultant, sure. whether there are areas where we can do better <coughs> as a board. Sure. I don't know. If I'm jumping the gun. I'm happy to do that. Colleagues again, here. Yeah, I, I speak at, um, you know, as at Calipers, where some of your colleagues have been, and I'll, I'll, I'll reflect back at some of the things that, uh, you know, good governance and strong boards should focus on, like focus on strategy, <coughs> et cetera. I'm happy to bring those talking points to it and, and share. I'll see if I can share that some of that material with the committee if it's of interest. Happy to do so. I'll, I'll, I'll capture the themes and, and, and identify those that are common to, to the industry as a whole, that kind of thing. So I'll, I'll, I'll try to I mean, provide I think that feedback. I think we're a stellar board. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the, you're, you know, it's good to hear your own self-assessment and uh, I'll reflect on and I'll talk to the other, I think it's in the public domain, so we can, we can also share the, the other board's perspective, federated. And we, have, we do have, I can do a comparison from the prior survey. Of course, there's turnover in the committee membership, but the questions are, are the same. So we'll see what areas are we, do the committee members this year as compared to two years ago feel we're getting better, worse, et cetera. I, mean, I think in, I've met a number of other public fund trustees, and I think one is at Calipers. I mean, yeah. And I think our governance standards are probably higher, I think, I mean, compared yeah. to most. I mean, yeah. Any other questions or comments? So we'll see you next month. Okay, thank you. <coughs> well, moving on to 4F, discussion and action to approve disability committee charter. I think that's you. Yes. Um, so as you may know, Measure F was passed to enact a San Jose Municipal Code provision that required the board to employ an independent medical panel to determine eligibility of dis disability retirements. This board has issued RFPs and have been uh, unable to fulfill that mandate. However, the board has a fiduciary duty to continue to adjudicate those applications. And as a part of our uh, policy review and true ups, we've noticed that we wanted to memorialize a disability committee charter. Um, which we have included with your backup materials. The disability committee charter outlines the committee operations as well as the uh, committee responsibilities. Um, I won't go them into detail because they're included with your backup materials, but this uh, disability committee charter is to conform with our and document our current practices and um, provide uh, guidance for the future committees. Uh, with that, it requires um, an action to approve. 
Um, can I ask, um, mm -hmm. is it possible to, because we say here two regular members and two alternates, and we know that it's tough to sometimes have these meetings. Um, can we have more members as alternates, um, just so there's more flexibility in terms of getting these meetings done? Um, well, there's two alternates and two regular members. That's a, about four members uh, to, to select from. And so in, in the charter, we allow either two alternates or two regular members or any combination of, the, of those four to form a quorum of two. So this committee only requires two individuals instead of three as to the others. But can we have five alternates instead of two? We could, but there is one complicating factor there is that these disability committee um, responsibilities are very difficult. Um, you have to do about, I don't know, was it six hours of training to be on the committee to understand how to review the, the packets and stuff like that. So it's up to the board right. if they want to add that <laughs> and go through all that right. training for all the well, alternates. Well, I'm an alternate. I've not done any training, so I would be just as bad or good as somebody else. But so. we know you are very bright trustees, <laughs> so. No, I just wanted to know that there are four alternates, two oh. plan members yeah. and two public members. So that's four in addition to the two other members of the of the committee. So there are four alternates. So two plus four, there's six? Yes. Oh, I see. Okay. okay. Uh, Wait, I said well, what, that? I'm sorry. So the alternates, um, so we have the two members, uh, right. which are uh, Drew and, uh, and Trustee Santos, and then there are four alternates. Two alternates that are plan members and two alternates that are uh, public members. That's always been the case. The two, the two public, public members are S4 right now and Howard Lee, and the two plan members are Frank Covado and Dave Wilson. If that needs to be indicated in the charter, maybe we want to do that. I, I think that what happened was at, w at one point, when they were designating committee members at the beginning of the year, they realized it was hard, I think, as as were indicated to get a quorum uh, of these committee meetings when one of them was absent. And so that's when we added the two and two. And so ideally, we like to have one of each side, right? A public member and a plan right. member. But sometimes both of them are either from the plan member side or the public member so side. So the way the, the charter is written here, and there, there would be Brown Act violations if we were to have the alternates as well, um, because it would be four uh, committee members out of, um, the, the, I'm sorry, more, if we had more than four um, committee members because it would be the majority of the, of the board on that committee. Um, but so though, so the, the way the current committee uh, charter is written at, in terms of the membership is that the disability committee shall consist of two regular members and two alternate members, so a total of four, yeah. two, right? And um, the alternates would be either one of the membership, either retired or active, um, and then one of the regular members. So there's only four here. So are you saying that currently we have two public members and two retirees as our alternates? Uh, as, as, a, as a pool of alternates that we as can pick from. Yeah, so they are never more than two members at a time at the, at the disability committee. Okay. So I think uh, you're the attorney, I'm not, I don't want any violation to the Brown Act, but okay. I was under the impression that so long as we only have two members attending the meeting, so we're going to pull this and, and readdress this because um, we had originally thought there was only one alternate um, from each the membership and the public side or alternatively if we wanted to address this. So 
we'll go ahead and do that. Yeah, and, and just a side note, just so that you understand how difficult this is, we just had to cancel the meeting coming up on Monday exactly because we didn't have a quorum for that meeting. <laughs> Even after addressing the issue for the four arguments. So with the direction of the board, I mean, it sounds like the, four, the, the request here is to have more than four alternates. Um, what is the discussion of the board? I think uh, what, we, what we would do is uh, what we're currently have. We have two that are sitting members of the disability committee and four that are alternates, two from the public and two from the plan. So a total of four in the pool to pull from should the two sitting members not be available. And then I just had another question that would have helped on Monday. I don't know what, what the rule is. Um, right now it is that they have to be in person to have the quorum. Um, Franco and I were both available, uh, but only by Zoom, and they said that wouldn't qualify as the quorum, so I don't know how that works out legally. Right, so th there has to be a physical quorum there, so if 50% if, if, if there's only two members on the board, the, the quorum, the requirements here are two, as specified in the charter, and so both of you had to be present. Okay, all right. My, my suggestion is if there's no Brown Act mic, I can't hear you. If there's no Brown Act issue, why don't we make all members as alternates? So we have two. We have a Dick and Drew, and everybody else is an alternate, so you have a pool of seven that you're trying to get if somebody's missing, like Drew's missing now, right? You know. So if, if I may, Mr. Chairman, there is a bit of uh, both potential legal and a, and a logistical issue. When and it's voluminous mm -hmm. per each disability applicant. That material before a meeting has to go to not only the two regular members, but it has to go to all the alternates as well. So they're prepared if at the last moment a regular member says, I can't attend, <coughs> they need to be prepared. They need to have read all the material, had asked whatever questions, that sort of thing. If we have the entire board having to do that, I, I doubt there are too many board members who want to take on that additional burden for the disability committee. The other problem is, is that because all that material, the disability committee does not make a final decision. It makes a recommendation to the full board. If more than a quorum of the board has already deliberated over the disability application, you have a real potential Brown Act problem there. So if that's the wish of the board, we need to take that back and, and do what we do best, which is make sure we're not exposing you to a potential Brown Act violation. But there is that practical issue. Do you want, Dick, tell us, how thick is a meeting's worth of? Yeah, I'm not kidding. I had a hernia when I got to read it. Literally <laughs> that. Let the record show the height <laughs> indicated by Trustee Sanders. I just Sanders. read it. And now we're going to cancel the meeting. So and I spent Sunday on that. So yes. So you know, if David and Howard work. and Andrew all want to get that material every time the disability committee meets, let us know. Uh, it, well, it's a perfectly, chair, like it's a perfectly great. Issue and a good and the reason you raise it is 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 a good one because it'll help us process the disability applications, but there's some chalk lines out there we ought to 
But we already make sure. had two plus four at six so well, out of nine. Well, quite honestly, I didn't know we had two plus four. And we've been right. with staff <laughs> exchanging drafts of this material for the last month. And this is the first I've heard that we've had four. Right. And so, you know, one thing to Harvey's point about everyone having the materials ahead of time every single meeting, what we could do to strike a compromise is that if we were to designate everybody on the board as alternates to the two sitting members, we would set a schedule and everyone would know in advance like which week or month or whatever the disability meeting would be and that's your designated time and we would know that alternate stepping in for a sitting member and rotate through. I mean, that's an alternative to satisfy that issue so there's much more clarity. Um, so I leave it to the board's direction how, how you would like to structure the charter. Well, through the chair, we, we've never had this come up because we've had members available and we've always been together on this, but great point and I hope we can fix it. If that's all the board, whatever it takes because this material is very sensitive and, and it's, you know, it depends on someone's life, uh, what happens to them. And so whatever your recommendation is, I hope the chair will adopt something here. I would recommend that we have a rotation schedule and have everything in advance um, just to have more clarity on it. Uh, because the issue is even with an alternate, if someone decides last minute they can't make it, that's five binders worth of materials that you would need to read through um, for the meeting. So um, I put that out there for discussion. And just rotate the four alternates. Alternates? We could certainly do that too. Um, we could, but as S were indicated and many of them know, this is a very um, complicated committee. There's a lot of data to go through. Uh, just from experience, I would strongly suggest not to rotate them uh, because it takes, uh, I mean, we could, but it takes a lot out of your time and the training that you have to go through. So uh, obviously, is the board prerogative here, whatever the board decides, we're fine with it from experience. And if you want to know more about it, you can talk to Dick. This is a very, and you've been to those meetings, Howard, there's a lot of detail, a lot of training. It takes a lot of your time, so. Right. I think my point of view would be this is the first time we've really had to cancel because an alternate wasn't available as well. So I don't think it's necessary to actually include the whole board and, and create a bigger pool because mm -hmm. it's just a one-off. So that's Thank my you. opinion. Yeah, pretty good. Yeah, and, and, and there is a lot of training that goes that will be involved. Um, Barbara has recorded them for, for everyone's benefit. So with that, I'll go ahead and uh, bring back the disability charter to reflect the current uh, situation, which is two alternates. I'm sorry, four alternates, two from the membership, two from the, um, the public. Okay. Thank you. Any further discussion? I'll entertain a motion on this with the caveat that they will be readjusting it. Uh, there's no, there's no motion. We'll just defer oh. action. Okay. So we'll defer it. Okay. Move on to retirements. We have service retirements. Jesse D. Belisco, fire engineer, fire department, effective September 14th. 2023 with 24.79 years of service. We have David Blackwell, fire engineer, fire department, effective September 17, 2023 with 22 years of service. Neil M. Conley, fire captain, fire department, effective September 30th, 2023 
with 25.29 years of service with reciprocity. William Doan, police officer, police department, effective <laughs> September 17, 2023, with 26.52 years of service. Mark Pimentel, police officer, police department, effective September 30, 2023, with 20.22 years of service. And Arlene Sum Summers, battalion chief, fire department, effective August 26, 2023, with 26.13 years of service. I'm going to entertain a motion. Motion support. A motion from Dick. Second, Wilson. Second, Wilson. All those in favor? Aye. Opposed? Okay. We have deferred vested. Arthur Belton, Battalion Chief, Fire Department, effective September 24th, 2023, with 21.36 years of service. Entertain a motion. Motion to support. Motion Santos. Second. Second Gardener. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Anyone want to? Yeah, thank you, Mr. Chair. Just thank all of them for their service and wish them nothing but the best of health. I'm going to echo the same thing. Thank you for your service and um, enjoy your retirement and stay healthy. Yeah, have a nice long retirement. You earned it. Okay. Moving on to six death and survivorship notifications. Notification of the death of Marvin G. Lewis, Sergeant, retired August 22, 1998, died July 3rd, 2023. Survivorship benefits to Maureen Lewis, spouse. Notification of the death of Marilyn J. Loser, police officer, retired January 5th, 1982, died July 23rd, 2023. No survivorship benefits. Notification of the death of Dowd A. Rove, fire engineer, retired January 13, 2007, died June 10, 2023. Survivorship benefits to Fad Hilly Rove, spouse. Notification of the death of Randall Schriefer, police captain, retired August 6, 2022, died July 29, 2023. Survivorship benefits to Kelly Schriefer, spouse, and Madeline Schriefer and Emma Schriefer, daughters. Notification of the death of Forrest Wilcox, fire captain, retired April 1st, 1993, died July 6th, 2023, no survivorship benefits. I'll entertain, oh, these aren't motions, are they? No, okay, we'll take a moment of silence. Okay. Anyone have something to say? Well, real quick is that uh, I worked with both of them, and it was sad. Of course, all the police officers that gave their life for all of us. We appreciate that, and best of their families. Thank you. Yeah, I'd like to say something. I, I didn't know Marvin and Marilyn, but Marvin uh, had 25 years in retirement. It looks like Marilyn had just over 50. It's amazing. Um, I did know Randy personally. Uh, he was taken away from us way too soon. Uh, it was very tragic. Um, his accident, and uh, my heart goes out to Kelly, Madeline, and Emma. Yeah, 
Thank you. All right, committee minute reports of the investment committee. Uh, we've had no meetings since. Okay, we'll receive and file. Uh, audit risk committee. Uh, yeah, we haven't met yet. We're meeting later this month. Okay, we'll receive and file. Governance committee, that is me. We have not had a meeting. I believe our meeting was canceled. We'll receive and file. Disability committee. We're supposed to meet on September 11th. That was canceled, and we're working on that to make sure we have more alternates. By the way, you should be receiving an email for your availability this coming Friday morning, the 15th. Not this Friday, but not the 8th, not tomorrow, but Friday the 15th. So when you get a chance, if you can respond to staff so we can decide whether we can schedule a meeting. On September 15th? Yes. I'll take a look, yes, I can. Thank you. Okay. We'll receive and file. And then Joint Personnel Committee. Also no <coughs> meetings since uh, last board meeting. Okay, receive and file. Is there any proposed agenda items? Okay, Mr. Chairman, um, in light of the fact that the city has now um, reached agreement with its unions for increased salaries, base building salaries, that are much greater than what the actuary has been assuming. Um, I would recommend that we consider requesting the actuary to either advise the board on the impact of those salary increases on the unfunded liability of the system, uh, or and possibly do an interim valuation because th those increases are in a compound off into the future. The actuary has been assuming a 3% increase, I believe, in salaries, in wages, and um, that's clearly not the case. <clears throat> we will be, your board will be taking, uh, starting in October, uh, presentations and discussions with the actuary. Uh, I believe they actually have an experience study scheduled for this year, so that will be Part of that discussion will be the increases in, in salaries. But you know, as, as I don't want to speak for the actuary, but uh, they will remind you that all these estimates are long, long term. So the fact that just like when you have an increase, uh, when the investment staff and you bore earned almost 30% two years ago, didn't cost you to increase your assumed rate of return, somewhat similar with the with the salary increases. You may get some high salary increases not because of inflation, but other years may be zero, or maybe very limited, and people don't get increases every year. So uh, I think what you will hear from them is that over time, the 3% may still seem reasonable in the long, long term. But having said that, I'm not an actuary. I think council is correct. Uh, they will take that into consideration when they do the experience study, and they will discuss that with the board. Thank you. Thank you, Roberto. Just a reminder that the pension contributions increase too as they get these raises. So it may not be as effective as affected as much as we think, but it sounds like that's already set to go. Is there any public comment? None. This meeting's adjourned.